Welcome to the I Create Daily Podcast. I'm Leora Alderson. And I'm Devani Alderson. We're your co-hosts on this journey of creativity and productivity. I Create Daily is for artists in every genre of creating, from musicians to writers, crafters to inventors, bloggers to entrepreneurs. I Create Daily is a movement for creators serious about your art. If you're into creating anything, this podcast is definitely for you. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Uh oh, wait a minute. Okay. All right. This is the I Create Daily podcast. I'm Leora. And I'm Devani. And we're here with Jay Akunzo. Welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm, I'm excited to chat. We, uh, we have a pre uh, intro, a pre podcast intro already. So we're not going to get into introducing ourselves, but we're going to introduce this amazing guest. So, Jay Akunzo is an award winning podcaster, energetic keynote speaker, and a guy bothered by conventional thinking host of the amazing, better than NPR podcast, in my opinion, Unthinkable, Jay's mission is to help you trust your intuition so you can realize the full potential, more, your full potential more quickly. So to start, we have with I Create Daily a little bit of a mantra or invocation. We start, we sustain, and we succeed. And so for the podcast, we're going to start with a little brief, another little brief excerpt on you and then ask you questions. Sure. So on your website, sorryformarketing.com, Jay says, I believe in creativity. I reject shortcut culture. I defend craft-driven creators and I make things to help makers. So this is amazing. As I said to you right before we started recording, we could talk with you all day listening to your podcast. We feel like we've already had so many conversations. I'm sure you get that, but you speak to our heart and you inspire our souls. It's very much the work that we're doing. I mean, look, unthinkable. We're having this podcast out in the woods, right? This is like, this is not normal, but this is who we are and what we do. So tell us more about what you do and how you got started. Yeah, th- thank you so much. There's uh, I, I, one of my favorite comedians is named Mike Birbiglia, and he has this quote about there's a lot of people that are good, there's a lot of people that are great, but very few people uh, basically speak to your soul when they perform. Um, and so that, that compliment meant the world to me. So thank you. Um, so right now I do three different things. I travel the country and a little bit the world, and I speak. So I'm, I'm a professional keynote speaker. That's the bulk of my business. And uh, behind that, I have this podcast that you mentioned, Unthinkable, where it's kind of like this public lab where we lob out ideas and go investigating and largely through narrative story. And, uh, you know, it's, it's evolved over the years. But right now, what, it, what we bill it as, what we promote it as, is uh, stories about conventional thinking in our work and the people who dare to question it. And so often people who do work that we deem crazy, whether that's crazy good and I wish I could do that or insane and that'll never work. Usually they know something we don't about their own context. And so when you talk to these people and tell their stories, it's not that they took some giant leap. It's not that they had some giant ideal or mantra or all these things that we hear about in our culture today. And they certainly didn't rely on some list article from an expert. They just knew their context better than you. Yeah. because it's their context. And so you hear them talk about their story like it's smart or logical or, or certainly meaningful. And so we call it unthinkable, not because what they did was actually unthinkable, but that's the perception from the outside. And the reason I'm doing this is because I want to tell more meaningful stories about work. And, and that's kind of my whole thing. I like to make people feel with the work I create and the work I create centers on the working world. 
coming out of startups and, and, you know, B2B companies mostly. And so I mentioned there's a third thing I do, which is I help other organizations try to spark movements bigger than themselves in the B2B space primarily through the creation of original shows about work. And so those, that's the kind of three, I guess, legs of the stool of my career right now. Um, but my background has been writing and marketing and working for tech companies, even a venture capital firm. And I've just kind of moved around a lot. And it always came back to this one idea of like drawing a lot of meaning from the work that we do. And I just don't think that that work is covered by the media or even brands that talk about work quite the same way that we all like to talk about it. And so I wanted to change that. Yeah. That makes sense. And I'm going to go off script a little bit here. So Devani and I do this all the time. We have our questions just so that our guests can have a sense of what we might ask. And yet we get in the conversation and it's like, we also want to follow that. And so sure. I want to go a little deeper into the, so, so that's like how you kind of got to be what you're do, doing, what you're doing. But how did you begin? What was the precipitating factor or factors that began to inculcate in you this concept of intuition and um, essentially like unconventional and the confidence to pursue that because that's the other missing thing like you said about you know people you know like they got there but they also had to have that confidence right Mm -hmm. right right I feel like it's always an amalgam of everything you've experienced that leads you to that moment right so it's hard to pinpoint one thing um, but I'll try to put a couple of dots on the map if I can look backwards at it so I think one of those things was I had a job at Google that was my first job out of college and I liked everything about the job the, the brand the people I actually met my wife at this job, so I have a great return on investment for my first job ever. Um, and I liked everything around the job itself, but when it was time to put my head down and do the job, I, I hated it. And I felt kind of guilty about that because here I am at this company, especially in 08, 09 and beyond where startups weren't as exciting and tech companies weren't as ubiquitous. Um, I, I was at Mecca. I should have been so grateful. I should have been so happy. And it was all because I think, I think we're sold this kind of like, lie about career, which is a great career is built on one foundation. It's the most important thing. And that is expertise. And expertise comes with prescription and a set of instructions and a career ladder. And we always get these feelings, especially as creators, that something's not sitting right. It's like, we could do better than that. I could do better than that. I want more from my work than that. And we're never told like how to view our work or how to view the pursuit of great work differently than just get better and better at the craft. And today that like how-to stuff is so commodified. It's everywhere. Like you can watch a show like this or listen to a show like this in a world where, you know, all this information exists. Expertise is now table stakes. Knowing how to do something, table stakes. So I think rather than building a career on expertise, you have to build a career on self-awareness, which nobody has taught us how to do. Nobody has advised us that that's actually the most important thing. And everything else, including the expertise you want to acquire, follows suit from that. So the foundation isn't how-to. The foundation is like why or why me or why my customers, you know, insight about yourself and others that you're trying to serve. So at Google, I had no insight about myself or others I was trying to serve yet. And so I was just writhing. I was just super unhappy. Mm. And and, I quit and I joined a bunch of startups and I started to feel better. And I started to get a lot more self-awareness because I was allowed to experiment and try and fail more which let me get more data points into my brain that said, okay, I'm, I'm about this. I'm not about that. And then it just kind of narrowly got into one more direction that looks like the one I described um, because I was trying so much different stuff and learning about myself and learning about the audience that I wanted to serve. So, so if there's one moment to me that paints a picture of that, it was my decision to quit Google because that was like my moment to say, 
this is the prescription. This is what I'm supposed to be doing to do good work and have a great career. And I'm realizing now it's not for me. I don't know what is for me, but I'm going to go try to figure it out. And so I think that started me on this journey of like self-awareness. And the shorthand for all of this stuff to me is intuition. Because intuition is really, I think, just knowledge from within or asking the right questions to pull out that knowledge from within. Mm -hmm. and, and that is your context about you and your audience. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Sure. Um, you say on your website that I think this ties in really well to the point you were making about uh, just following that, that gut feeling of this isn't necessarily what I want to do, even though everyone says, you work at Google, you work at one of the best companies ever. Why aren't you like the happiest person alive? But you talk about you um, on your site, you say that it's your aspiration to create the world's most powerful business stories. Yeah. Um, and I know on your Unthinkable podcast, you definitely find some great stories. We listened to the Grado, the, the ear company story, uh, headphone company story the other week, and it was amazing. And can you, you elaborate on, on what you mean by that as well? Like just what you're doing with that beyond just the podcast? So, yeah, I mean, it very simply boils down to this. Like my whole thing I mentioned briefly was I, I want to make them feel. So whether you're consuming my work in the form of a podcast, a written article or a speech, I want to make someone else feel. And, and the whole gamut of feeling from laughing and just enjoying yourself to kind of introspection or crying, like, the, you know, like not crying per se, but feeling the emotions associated with tears or you're kind of like really moved. Because like that to me, is when you get to realize your full potential, like as a person, like you, you've, you've, you've kind of like been told again that this working world is about like expertise and, you know, a stock ticker at the bottom of your screen and, you know, like how to tips and tricks articles. And those are really hollow things. Um, and a lot of us draw significant meaning from our work. And so why can't there be the daily show of tech? Why can't there be the sports center of marketing or the This American Life of sales or, or on and on and on? Whatever you do, I feel like it needs to be portrayed. It deserves to be portrayed in a way that matches how you actually experience it. So this is kind of like outside of unthinkable, outside of my speeches. This is just like my personal kind of driver. It's like I really want to be someone who contributes to people doing their best work. And I think part of that is they see themselves reflected in the media they create or rather consume about work. And so if I can create some of that media and I can inspire some people to be like, I'm going to unleash my full self. I get it now. It's about me and my own self-awareness, not about some expert or guru. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Right. But if I totally fail in serving others in that way, and, and I hope I don't, at least I get to create some really cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I can't see you failing at doing that. <laughs> it's early yet. Thank you. Though. Job of, of um, highlighting those stories. And I think something that's also important is you said, and you said, that I hope people get it, create the media they want to see. And I think that's really important right now. Um, in our community, we have several people who, uh, several artists who talk about how, you know, there's this bombardment of media that they don't necessarily want to hear. And they don't, and it, it it impacts their own art because it's like, how do I process all this information in the world that I can't do anything with? And so creating media that you want to see out there and creating, and you also said helping people um, uh, feel. And I think that's what creatives do, whether you're an entrepreneurial creative or an artist creative or a mix of all of that. It's helping people feel that full range of emotion. That's really important. And I think that's why all of us get into doing this because we do the job route and that's fun and that's cool and that's great experience. And then we're like, 
but there's something more and you have to scratch that itch of something more. And, and by the way, if you are working for a large organization and love it, or if you just want a job that pays the bills so you can go home at five and draw meaning, you know, outside of work, great. Yeah. As long as you know that about yourself, if that's what you're about and you get it, awesome. Um, I would look back at people at Google that stayed longer than I did and maybe even some that are still there. And I'm like, how could you be doing that? Like I felt so crushed at that job and, and I, I wanted to prescribe that others leave or prescribe that they join a startup. And I did at first. And then I realized, you know what? Hold on a sec. This whole life is just about this, this continual journey to become more and more self-aware. Yeah. And, and as I became more self-aware and obviously we're all continuing that, but, but in the moments I've had since leaving Google, I'm able to look back now and say, okay, as long as you're happy there, great. And so I'm not trying to get on a stage or in front of a microphone and be prescriptive about how you can find happiness. I'm trying to encourage people to pursue that yeah. in whatever context you have, whatever that means to you, right? I can't hand you the seven tips and tricks or the one simple secret. I can't teach you to be rich and all that other stuff. I happen to play on the same channels using the same mediums as people who profess to have secrets. I have no secrets. What I want to do is have you leave with a list of questions, like the right questions to ask of yourself and your situation, and then you will pull out your own unique answers, understand your context better, and I think do more exceptional work. Right. Yeah. Have you found the more that you've um, dove into your own self-awareness, you almost naturally become more aware about others? Um, I've always wondered, just because for me, it seems like the more self-aware I am, the less worried I am about oh, that person doesn't seem happy, so I should go tell them do this thing and launch into this thing. But have you ever noticed, like, the more um, into your own um, internal awareness you get, the less you really, like, you just kind of release that need of, like, I have to tell everybody this Fixing. is the secret of life. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's so tempting to do that, right? Because if you've found a way that worked, you, you A, want to feel good about that way and, and sort of brag to others. Yeah. But B, and hopefully more importantly, you want to, to feel that sense of belonging. Like humans are wired to want to be in the middle of the, the group because we're safest, right? Mm -hmm. And so you want others to do it your way so you feel like you're a part of something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think to answer your question, I have stopped trying to be prescriptive. Um, but it is hard. It's not like I'm just like, oh, I, I don't feel any urge to tell you. A good example is people ask me how to podcast. And I used to try to prescribe. Yeah. Um, but there's a million ways to do a podcast and do it well. And so now what I do is I try to start asking them questions. Because if I can learn a little bit more about their context, instead of being like an expert who leads them, maybe I can be a mentor who just kind of points out possibilities. Yeah. Right? It's like, hey, I would never take this path. And I, I would never prescribe it because that's not me. But it seems like given X, Y, and Z that you just told me that I just learned, you might actually want to go down that road, right? And it's sort of like a lesson from my show. It's like, yeah, in general, don't do that. But you're not operating in a generality. We're all operating in a specific context. Yeah. Or yeah, in general, that's crazy until you understand something about their reality instead of yours. Yeah. So, but it's really hard. You know, we all do things. We want the things we do to matter. And therefore, we want the things, the way we're doing things to be the right way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I... I, I I kid with some people in the startup world that I come from that if there was one documentary we should all create being from the startup world, I think we should call that documentary infinite roads. Hmm. Right. And I think that's true of any work. Like there's not one way to do something. So who are you to say you have to do it this way? Yeah. And we live in this culture, unfortunately, that there's a lot of how to's yeah. and there's a lot of you shoulds yeah. and there's a lot of you have to's. Yeah. And the only thing you have to do, I think is, is think for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. The only thing you have to do 
is think for yourself. That's super, that's quotable. There's a quotable, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I want to go back to Google for just a minute because when sure. you were talking about uh, being miserable there and it seems like maybe there you were working on a what but not your why. It's sort of like you had the outer shell, but your purpose, you know, essentially the soul of who you are was not able to, to come out and do its work. Would that be somewhat of an accurate description? Yeah. I wish someone told me that the point of early work, you know, especially in your twenties is to try stuff and figure out what you do and don't want to do or who you are, who you aren't, instead of find the one thing that'll carry you for years and years. Um, that that's kind of how I was frustrated because I was like, this isn't the job where these stop for me. And that was the wrong, I think, mental approach. Yeah. So where you are, and then when you left Google, I mean, you, you were up against a couple of things. One is sort of stepping outside of the culture, being from, you were stepping outside of the middle because, hey, you had the coolest job and the coolest company in the world and you're leaving, you know, so now you're going to be on the outside. So that was one like bold move. Uh, and you didn't know for sure what you were stepping into. So many people in, the, in, in our audience that will be growing and becoming ever more so are those who are in that place of where they are. They're looking to make art their full time. They're looking to do work that matters to them as a way to also earn in revenue, earn income, make a living. So there is that chasm for you. And you talk about that in, a, in show six, which I'll mention again later, but um, there's that chasm. So what did you do in that chasm? How did you build that bridge to the other side? And what was yeah. that? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's the bulk of, uh, we did this like mini arc within the show to try to make sense of intuition and the application of it to make it practical, not lofty. Mm-hmm. And, um, This idea of a chasm, the word you used is bold too. Like it was a bold move for me to leave Google. And again, I I come back to the principle of the show. Yes, from the outside looking in or yes, from their perspective outside of you, right? But if you knew me, if I, you know, and if also if I knew me better, I I maybe would have left earlier or not viewed it as this leap I would have to take, you know? And so what got me over that leap is I think through frustration and pain and time, all things that you can get rid of if you're more self-aware, right? But through all that stuff, I finally realized like, look, I want to build something from scratch because that's where I draw meaning in my work. I'm not the guy who wants to tinker on the machine incrementally. I'm the one who has a bunch of parts laid out in front of them or wants to figure out what the parts should be and build an early okay version of that machine. That's what I love. And I, I, you know, the sooner I realized that, the easier it got to make that move. So from the outside, maybe it looked like a bold move to leave a great company, cushy job, reputable brand. But if you knew that about me or if I knew that about me, which again, now I do, it's not a leap at all right? And so what we talk about in the show is when we want to do exceptional work, you know, we talk about that gut feeling that's telling us we can do more, that gut feeling that has an idea or that sense of frustration. There's some kind of like inner just thing and I can't put my finger on it all the time, but it's like, it's moving me forward. It's moving me towards like this mountain peak and I don't know how to get there. And so often it looks like a leap. It looks like a massive journey. It looks like a bold adventure or whatever. But if you know the right questions to ask, of your own situation, you can start to like be an investigator in your context about yourself, be an investigator about your audience or the people you think you want to serve, be an investigator about your resources, which so often we think we need more of, which I think is the great lie of creativity. Creativity doesn't mean big. Yeah. Um, but anyways, asking the right questions kind of builds this bridge. I don't want to yeah. slow, but just yeah. watch what you said. Sure, sure. Creativity doesn't mean big. Nope. Let's pick back no. up on that when you get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So creativity doesn't mean big. Okay. Um, perfect example. If you're a writer, 
I get this a lot after speeches like, Jay, that was great, but my boss, but my time, but my team or industry. And it's sort of like when you unpack what they're trying to do, when I ask them questions, and I hope then they leave and ask these questions of themselves, mm -hmm. we can actually distill it to like the first principle insight, the truth underlying all the anger and angst and desire to do something big. And what they're saying is, I'd like to write better things for the company blog. Great. In their mind, because they're motivated and creative and aspirational in their work, they want to write long form essays about amazing people. Great. Keep that in the back of your mind. Keep that mountain peak in view, right? But what are the first few steps to get there? Like they're saying that they can't do that because their boss doesn't get why that's important. Okay. So you're going to write a blog post this week, right? Yup. Uh, does your boss control the first few sentences you use in every single article? Nope. Okay. Can you just make those better? Like why not start each post with an anecdote, which is like a flavor of what you're trying to do an echo or a, a small piece. Right. And then what you start to do is collect little true believers, people that respond in a big way to what you're doing. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. It can be a few number of people, but like a small number of people, but you can show your boss, Hey, you know, I started with this story and people started adding their own. Or look, how, look at the comments section or look at the, the, the tweets we got, their original thoughts, not just a like or a retweet. And you can hold that up and say, I'd like to expand from this tiny little box to this slightly larger box, not the full field, not the, the wide open creative freedom, yeah. which I'd actually, we should talk about creative freedom because I, I dislike that term too. But it's all about trying to paint creativity as a work ethic instead of this kind of big lofty ideal, this wide open field, this bigness. I don't know where that comes from. Maybe because the people that inspire us do things that are so different than us or they're so final that we haven't considered the journey they went through to actually do that. Yeah. Right. I don't get it. What, what, what do you have any thoughts on that? Um, for me, um, my dream well, after reading, uh, so I was an avid reader when I was younger. Um, I was homeschooled for the most part. And so I got a lot of enjoyment and my own creativity from reading things like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, all those fantastical yeah. books for me uh, as a natural as a natural creative person who wants to explore the arts in all sorts of forms, it was this romantic image of, oh, I bet they spend their time thinking about these amazing things. And I want to do that. So sort of like how you were coming, uh, how you were talking about perspective from the outside without knowing the context. To me, it was like these highly educated, incredibly intelligent academic people sitting in this amazing setting, writing these epic, fantastical books. So that was my sort of perception of something mm -hmm. I didn't really know anything about. Mm -hmm. And so I would sit in front of the computer screen and type out a couple sentences and be like, I'm just sitting here in my house in this everyday to me environment doing this thing that doesn't feel fantastical. And so it's sort of this gap for creatives, I think, that it's like closing the gap between the romanticized vision and perception you have of something versus the daily grind of actually doing it. And so I think for me, when you close that gap and be like, okay, well, if you want to get to this, quote, romantic version of whatever it is you're doing, you need to realize that every single day you have to do those small things right. that might... Right that might feel like work, which is a funny thing for creatives. They're like, I don't want it to feel like work because as it starts to feel like work, it's not art anymore. And I think that's a myth too. Oh my God, that's getting me so fired up right now. So um, <laughs> if, it, it, 
it is just work. Not, okay, so just is the wrong word. All it is, is the work, right? If you're not in love with the process of doing the thing, of painting, of writing, of podcasting, if you're not in love with the journey, you're just obsessed with the end results, you're gonna get worse end results. There's actually a a psychological term for this approach, which is TELIC, it's T-E-L-I-C, TELIC. It largely comes from game theory, um, basically what it means is done to a definite end or done for the end result alone. So it's a chore, right? So let's take like two, two quick examples, sweeping your floor versus eating ice cream. <laughs> I love ice cream. That's my Achilles heel. So do you eat ice cream for the process of getting to the end faster, quicker, or more cheaply? That's no, you enjoy <laughs> the process, right? The object is not to have a dirty bowl. Or, so you don't outsource it to a friend to eat the ice cream. No. You don't try to like find cheaper ice cream or try to like spend less time eating ice cream, right? So when you enjoy it, it's intrinsic, right? When you, do, when you have an intrinsically motivating task at hand, you want to spend more time with it. You want to improve it, right? So what do we do with ice cream? We, uh, we put more toppings, right? We try to make it better. We, we have more flavors. Um, we eat it in extra large cups or or like extra large cones. We have some um, weddings where we all compare it. <laughs> right. By the way, um, do, not, do not even bring up kitty sizes. I think kitty sizes are for quitters. <laughs> this is, yeah. So, but the point is, if it's an intrinsically motivating task, you focus on the process. Mm-hmm. And what happens as a byproduct is you get better end results. Yeah. And this to me is what it means to be craft driven. It's not that you're trying to be an expert in theory. It's that you're so in love with the process itself, with the context you're in, with the, the motion forward day to day, every single day, the grit and the grind, like that's all there really is. Yeah. There isn't some finish line. And if all you're focused on is the finish line, again, you're going to look for the cheat, the hack, the quickest way there that'll dilute the work. And also you'll borrow from people telling you go this way and that's their way, maybe not yours, right? Or that's the average. And so you end up doing commodity things in your work. So when I hear a creative whether you're in in business or just an artist trying to sell a painting once in a while, or you have a side project, whatever it is you're doing in hobby or in in work, if you're like, well, I I don't want to make it feel like work. I understand. I agree. The perception of work that we have in the world, sure. Yeah. But if you say you don't want to make it about the process, that's all this is. And it actually gets you where you're trying to go better. Absolutely. Yeah. Life is the journey not the end destination, especially sure. when it comes to life. So really it's a good correlation. Yeah. And you hear the quote and, and when you don't stop to think about it, you're like, Oh, that's just a cheesy quote. But then when you really like try to d- digest that, it's like, right. Okay. Every day is the process, which is why yeah. we've been created. I create daily because it right. is that daily process. It is that tomorrow you wake up and it's not tomorrow. You wake up an hour earlier. It's okay. So you have five minutes today to try and perfect the beginning of that blog post or make it more interesting, even if your boss says you can't write the full length uh, thing that you want to create. So you have that five, 10 minutes, do that now. Right, again, power of, power of questions. Do you want to be doing this for a long time? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What does a long time look like to you? Uh, years, decades, okay, great. What you're frustrated by right now is you can't do that awesome thing right now. Yeah. I understand, I'm with you. Um, what could you do now? And how do you measure your, your constant improvement, not over days, not over weeks, but over months or years, right? Because like there's that thing, I always butcher this phrase, but like we, we overestimate what we can get done in a day and underestimate what we can get done in a year or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's about aligning how you view the work. It's again, self-perception, self-awareness. Yeah. If you're measuring your improvement every single day, it's really frustrating because some days you have a bad day. I do this all the time. 
yesterday I was in a bad mood at the end of the day because I didn't get done what I thought I would. Mm -hmm. And my wife, who's in psychology, reminded me, she's like, you want to be doing this forever. The reason you're in this job and on your own doing it is because you're looking at the 5, 10, 25-year arc of time. So you should measure your progress at least week to week, but probably further out than that, right? right? The macro level arc versus the micro level arc. So it's sort of like measure your progress on the macro and then engineer behavior on the micro, right? It's not like I'm going to install this new behavior five minutes a morning and did it work in a week? No, right? It's did it work in seven months, eight months, 12 months? Because again, I asked you that question at the beginning. Do you want to be doing this for a long time? Yep. Okay. Act like it. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. That's brilliant. So one of the things we're doing with I Create Daily Brand is we're running a 100-day creators challenge. Nice. Um, So we're in day 16 of that. 18. Sorry, 18 of that right now. And uh, I'm not behind. (laughs) (laughs) We're in day 18 of that right now. And, you know, that's so one of the things and there's so many lessons in that experience and we're going to be doing that on a regular basis at least maybe two a year so we'll probably start one again january 5th this one started september 5th what we're advising people is if your work doesn't compel you to get out of bed in the morning then either you might ask yourself is this the work you really want to be doing or it could just be that you haven't dove into that river yet fully you're not into that flow because you're thinking about it outside of yourself it's not something you're doing from the inside out yet because so and as entrepreneurs you know we what we recognize is one of the reasons we're working all the time is because part of what we're creating is our life that's who we are it isn't that we are our work it's that our work is us right? right and so it's sort of like if you know we're many artists who might be working in a job and i say artists we're thinking creatives speakers authors entrepreneurs uh, engineers coders anyone who's creating anything in the process of literally creating something that didn't exist before inventors that's creating so um creators and entrepreneurs uh or before they get going and that if they're working at a nine to five job in the meantime concept of work is nine to five Mm -hmm. and so then they're thinking they will replace what they're doing in their art with that nine to five concept. But what happens when you get into yes. flow as an entrepreneur, it isn't about a clock in clock off. And once you dive into that sea of creativity, you don't want to get out. You know, the water is totally. great and ideas yeah. will yeah. proliferate. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's two, so there's two quick stories I can share from the show that illustrate two of the different things you just said. So one is, uh, I want to tell, tell you quickly about Alec Brownstein and quickly about Chase Jarvis. Um, so let's start with Alec Brownstein. He is now, I'm going to butcher his title, the executive creative director, I think, at Dollar Shave Club, which was acquired for a billion dollars, I think, last year or something. But his claim to fame early on in his career was he did something called the Google Job Experiment, where he really wanted to work for these large premium level agencies in New York. And he wanted to know the creative director and get hired by them at all of these five target agencies. And, you know, it's really hard to meet these people and everybody wants a job from them. And everybody has, again, the table stakes stuff. I know how to do the work because that's the commodity now. Uh, I have a portfolio because the advice is saying, have a great portfolio. That's the commodity now. So how do you stand out? How do you reach these people if everybody is sort of like already here? And what he did was he realized like these people are high powered individuals and 
probably more so than the average person, or at least just like the average person. They probably Google their names once in a while. Mm -hmm. And so he ran Google AdWords against their names and said, hey, so-and-so, Googling yourself is fun. You know what else is fun? Hiring me. Mm -hmm. And then he linked to a quick video he created for them with his portfolio behind it. And then he got, uh, I think, four out of the five interviewed him, two out of the four gave him a job offer, and then he went to work for Y&R in New York. And it blew up. The, you know, the, the firm promoted this project. He got, I think, the, the video he created or the, the page he created got over like a billion views. Wow. He was on like all these TV shows and all these you know, media companies picked up the story. It, it exploded. And it really like, was a slingshot for his career. It propelled him. Um, now, what he talks about, to your point of like, and I, I'm sorry, what was that phrase again about the work and us that you said before? Um, let's see the work and us that, that oh, okay. Okay. It's yeah. like the work. We aren't the work. The work is us. Yeah. The, okay. Right. Yeah. So yes, except you can't prescribe who you are to the work because who you are is this person that wants to do that great kind of work, mm -hmm. but the work you're capable of is only right here. Right? right. And so if that's how it is in reality, then if you're like, I am my work, my work is me, we are equal then your person becomes work that's unfulfilled or work that's still a work in progress. So Alec talks about, you know, he's a serial side project creator, which got him the skills to do what he did. And he's like, I just think of it as it's not who I am. It's what I'm doing right now. And when it's what I'm doing right now, instead of who you are, even if you get meaning from it, now it's about constant improvement. Mm. Instead of I got to launch the thing yeah. that will forever define me, yeah. which is, yes, sometimes you want to get to that point, but to get to that point, you got to launch stuff along the way. And that point, so that's the Alec Brownstein story. Good. And for like messy creatives or creatives who want to do many different things, mm -hmm. that's almost more, um, that's easier to relate to the person who's doing, I'm, I'm doing this thing now and it's constant improvement. And that's easier to relate to than forever my new title will be this, you know? Yeah. And like, I know that that was a frustration for me for a while. It was like, well, am I this forever now? Versus no, you get to improve. You get to do something else. And right yeah. now you're doing this writing or right now you're running this company or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. I was an athlete. So I, I view creativity as, as a sport or as, as an exercise. I think there's muscles we're working out just by virtue of doing the job. And um, if you know, do you guys know what the weird thing about uh, Rafael Nadal, the tennis player, uh, the weird thing about his arms? Have no. you ever heard of this? No. So he's a lefty. So when he practices and when he plays, he uses his left arm quite a bit and his right arm less. And so if you look at a picture of him, his left arm is significantly larger. Right. Like well, we should never ever be that way unless we have this one thing we want to do forever like mm -hmm. rafael nadal is like i am a tennis player that's what i am i know that to be a tennis player you're gonna have a strong arm and a weak arm it doesn't matter for him but for us as creators like if we've used this muscle over and over every day we can get into a rut and everything else can start to atrophy so yeah. you can use side projects or you can use the next version of the project you just created to tweak or improve something tiny yeah um but there's another way you could look at it too which is the Chase Jarvis approach. So he is the uh, CEO of Creative Live, which is a live streaming education company that teaches creatives how to build their companies and their careers. And uh, kind of social media influencer guy. He's been around the block a, a while in photography in particular. And uh, he became known for that first and the company. So he has this saying, we talked to him on the show. Uh, I think the title of the episode was The Muse is an Excuse. Mm, and I, love that. I loved that title. That's thank you. 
that I was, that was one of my favorite episodes. And, and cause he comes on, he talks about the work ethic. He talks about all this stuff, you know, and he talks about not externalizing your own inspiration, but you know, owning it and owning your creative power and you have to actually execute yourself. It's not going to just hit you from some random source. Um, so, but anyways, he talks about his secret. Like people are like, how do you get to do such cool work chase? Or, you know, why are you able to be creatively fulfilled where so many of us are writhing and struggling? And he says his secret to the extent that there are such things is he doesn't try to uh, make art as the work he does. He tries to do work that allows him to make art. Mm-hmm. In other words, and if it's not the same, the job and the art, he's going to select projects that give him the financial or schedule freedom to make great art, mm-hmm. right? So um, in my case, I love giving keynote speeches. I really, really do. And you're great But my it. real art, thank you. But my great art, the art I love to make, the art I want to improve is narrative storytelling. Mm-hmm. And right now that happens to be a podcast. Yeah. And so I get to speak and that's a privilege and I love it, but I use that to allow me to make my podcast, which directly leads to $0 in my life. Yeah. Right. But the schedule of travel, being on a plane for all these hours, getting to meet all these interesting people and hear their stories or getting to tell these stories in front of audiences and see what resonates. All of that allows me to earn a living and have a schedule that allows me to make my art. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes you can view it like that, too. It doesn't always have to be Absolutely. together. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's it's the old cliche of a means to an end, mm-hmm. you know, so it's and, and you know, that the other thing that's important mm-hmm. to you is inspiring people to follow their their intuition and do the work that matters to them and you certainly are able to do that as a keynote speaker as well you know and and you're able to do the um, narrative storytelling because you've used a lot of your stories from your podcasts and the guests that you interview you know in your keynote speeches which we've tuned into on youtube a number of them are free on youtube and uh, yeah, yeah you do a great job with that so thank you it can be both and so part of that too is like so one of the, some of the things that we advise people is, and I've done this with the kids as well, and that is that you may not always do what you love to do, but you can always find a way to, to put love into the doing, you know, essentially because we're still who we are. And while it may not be my favorite thing, you know, if I'm, you know, clocking in nine to five and by my, you know, pushing pencils for somebody else, mm-hmm. but there's always some creative way to look at that job, you know, even yeah. in what it is we're doing. And so, so that's it. It's like, you know, if we have within us a fulfillment, you know, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of love, a sense of uh, being more fully who we are in the world in our own time, then we can bring that into the work that we do, even if it's not our favorite thing. Amen. Here, here. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, sorry, if it's your turn. No, go for it. <laughs> okay. um, you mentioned that it would be good to get into this other topic. I think it's something to do with constraints. Creative freedom. Creative freedom. Did our, did our connection break up? I think Are you there? It. Okay, sorry. Uh, no, I still have you. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you mentioned creative freedom and I know that we learned about the uh, creative constraints author book. I forget right now. Uh, A beautiful constraint, I think. Hmm. something that we learned about from was that not in your podcast i was I thinking don't think, i think it was from somebody else okay well if you haven't <laughs> read if you haven't read the book a beautiful constraint you will yeah. love so go ahead though with your creative constraint concept 
Well, it's, so it's not, it's not my concept so much as I'm trying to like investigate the truth and deliver it. Right. And so I'm, I'm using lots of other sources, but constraints actually help your creativity. They're your strengths instead of what they usually turn out to be, which is sources of complaints. Yeah. So there's some, there's some rhyme in there that we could create. It's like constraints are for strengths, not complaints. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, so before we get all Dr. Susian, yeah. <laughs> the, um, the idea of creative freedom to me is a myth. And what I mean by that is if we had total creative freedom to build whatever we wanted, let's say you wanted to write an article, you picture that blank screen with the blinking cursor. What do we automatically do in our minds or subconsciously? We install our own constraints. What do I want to write about? What am I excited about? Do I have an anecdote for my life? What, how long is this going to be? Where am I going to publish it? You start to install your own constraint. You literally cannot operate in total creative freedom. And luckily, if you look at all the studies and research being done around like idea generation and execution, uh, constraints ha- help you yield uh, more ideas, so quantity, and more effective ideas, quality, together at the same time when you have constraints. Because you have direction, you have purpose, you have an understanding of what you're trying to do. So when we complain we don't have the freedom to create, I think what we're actually saying is we don't agree to the box that we're in. But it doesn't mean we should try to get out of boxes in general. Yeah. Right? So like a, a, a good boss report relationship or a good teammate relationship or good client, you know, freelancer relationship, you agree on the box together. You're like, these are our constraints. These are our resources, you know, and maybe you're thinking this way and I'm thinking that way, but look, this is the reality. It's a statement of fact. These are our constraints. We have this time constraint, this budget constraint, et cetera. And we have this many people, all that. And the key, if you're a leader listening is once you establish the box for your team, for your client or freelancer, stay out of the box. Let the people that do the creative stuff innovate inside that box. Yeah. When people get mad, when they're like, I need creative freedom, it's that they feel like someone is watching them or jumping into the box and crowding them. But again, there is no such thing as creative freedom. So there's one of two problems. You don't agree to the box you're in or somebody is in this box bugging you after you've agreed to one. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't need to fight constraints. You need to embrace them because it actually yields more creativity. It's just the nuance with which you discuss these constraints that needs to change. Yeah, excellent. And, and that certainly applies to our life in general. Sure. So we all have constraints within our life. Um, so we do what we can within that and we push at the boundaries of those constraints right. so that they grow to be more back to the physical uh, fitness metaphor. The only way to grow our physical, our physique, our muscles is to push right. them essentially, push and pull against constraints. And you know, right. interestingly enough, if you hadn't <clears throat> had the feeling of the Google constraint in your earlier career, if you had had the job that allowed you to pursue narrative storytelling within somebody else's box, it might've taken you a lot longer to realize, hey, I wanna break out on my own and do this and explore these other different stories. So it's also like sometimes being in a certain constraintive box will help you leap into a next one where you're like, oh, this is the one I belong in. And this is the one I can do something more with. And this one is just a stepping stone to the right. next. Yeah. Right. I'll give you a great example of that exact process. So there's a, uh, an amazing blog called The First Round Review, published by First Round Capital. It's an investment firm in the startup space. And they have a prestigious brand. And the woman behind that blog, her name is Camille Ricketts. And when she was hired, there was like, literally hundreds of blogs covering the startup space and probably about 100 to 120 of those were by VCs that first round competes with. So 
the stakes were high because this brand she was hired by were it was incredibly public and prestigious, and the competition was fierce. And so what she did, and again, they, they basically created like the Harvard Business Review for startups, but the way she got there is what we can learn from, the constraints. So she had 30 days to launch a blog. Uh, it had to be a brand new blog for startup CEOs with zero writers on staff, zero budget, um, and basically like zero proof that this is going to work. There's just so many constraints. And instead of looking for the creative free, uh, freedom or open field, she put herself in that box and she's like, all right, what can I do within that? And so she started going to local startup events in San Francisco, look for the most passionate responses to these speeches that were being told in these rooms and transcribe the best speeches onto the blog. Hmm. And then what she did, because she didn't want that to be the whole goal, right? She had this vision of, I want this big publication. She had that aspiration. She said, okay, this is a case study. And went to her bosses and said, look at the emotional response to these transcriptions. We're not getting the big numbers yet, but I think we're on the right path because look at the visceral reactions we're getting to this small experiment. And then she got permission to hire a writer and they started doing long form essays. And she used that as a case study to build out community groups. She got more resources to build community. And then she used that as a case study to get more resources to create original research reports. And, and now they even build out like technology to help their audience grow and learn. And, and today, everybody loves this publication in tech. It's subscribed to by hundreds of thousands of people, read by hundreds of thousands more. But the moral here is, it wasn't like she had permission to do this at the beginning. Yeah. In fact, there was probably a lot of doubt that she should. Yeah. And by embracing her constraints, by moving from box to box, like little by little, she built something big. Yeah. And so that is a po the power, I think, of the willingness to embrace your constraints, innovate and succeed within that, and move on to the next set of constraints. I think that's that, that kind of power on display. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And every creative has their medium of constraints. Mm -hmm. so that's sure. Advice. So you mentioned Harvard Business Review. And how is it that your work has been used at Harvard Business School? How did that happen? So I worked for a venture capital firm after uh, working for three different tech companies, Google, um, another one that went public called HubSpot, and then a very small startup. So I kind of saw very big, right in the middle, very small. And then I went, went to work for a venture capital firm. And um, one of the things that was missing, I thought, in a lot of publications run by venture capital firms, um, first round review may be the exception here, but it was this focus on like navel gazy, you know, thought leadership stuff from the partners because they are smart, accomplished guys that people want to hear opinions from. But what was missing was like a focus on what the entrepreneur is going through and how you as the, the VC can solve it. Because ostensibly, that's why you want an investment from that firm eventually, right? So the content should mimic what the product does. And so I built out this series of um, board deck and pitch deck templates. We got like really, really specific and had a couple of people vet them. We, we, we treated it like a product, really, and then released it to the world. And it got picked up by Harvard Business School um, as part of their curriculum for their kind of entrepreneurship focus classes. Uh -huh. So I didn't set out for that to happen, yeah. but that was a really nice byproduct. And I think if there was something I learned there, it's just the power of involving the people you're eventually going to ship this to in the process before you ship it. And I think that's what good tech product managers do. Yeah. especially in software. I think as an artist or a creator, you can learn from that too, because it improves the odds that whatever you're producing is actually going to be effective and beloved by the other people. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Um, we're already going over and I knew this was going <laughs> to happen with you because we, had, we haven't even gotten nearly through our list, but it's just, uh, there's so many things that we could talk with you about, like I said, all day. Mm -hmm. um, but 
moving on because we probably should honor your time and keep it to the closer to the 45 minute time frame. For those who are creating daily, um, so that includes you. And, and let, me, let me just mention a quick snippet in your podcast. Like I'm one of the things I'd love to know, but I want to take your time doing telling me now is how you create your podcast. It's so well constructed. I mean, literally it's like it's <laughs> Thank so you. Well put together. So that in of itself could be, you know, that's artistry. It's a whole podcast. It's artistry. <laughs> but what is your daily creative structure that, you know, allows you to create daily? I don't have one. And I struggled with this question for a long time and I thought I needed one and I read the articles about how you need one and I don't have one. Um, again, self-awareness. I think if I'm going to do anything that helps my structure or rather helps me produce and be prolific, it's, it's constant focus on the first principles of why I do what I do, yeah. right? Like finding the fun is very important to me. Yeah. If it feels like a chore, if it feels telic instead of intrinsic, I don't do it or yeah. I struggle to do it. And so I don't have a structure. I'm really, really good at organizing my thoughts and my to-dos and, and largely using technology like Evernote and Trello to do that. But daily, I have no recurring routine. I just know I got to do this today. And I come in and I'm excited about it and I have to make myself excited to the point where sometimes you catch me on YouTube watching a cheesy sports montage or, you know, like a, a rock group performing to some giant arena to get the energy flowing and inspiring myself, right? There's different ways, you know, I sometimes move to a coffee shop if I'm not feeling it in the office, but I, I just, I try to focus on the North Star and where I'm trying to get to and use that hunger and inspiration I feel because I'm so focused on, I want more. Yeah. Um, to, to then focus me back on, I now have to create something today as one step in that giant direction. So yeah, that, that works for me. Yeah, oh, and it makes perfect, I mean, it's so good to hear in a way that you know every, all of us struggle with that day-to-day -day thing and have to look for what works for us to keep us motivated and to keep us going. Yeah. So sure. yeah, you're still human, that's good to know. Right, right, and I think largely we, we try to obsess over creative structure because we want to be more prolific in our own lives and yeah. try out a bunch of stuff, make it a bunch of experiments, right? Like it's, it's finding the, the groove that works for you. Yeah. Um, but then also if you get into a groove, I think you become dulled to potential inspiration yeah. Yeah. and, and yeah. you so that you need to break those patterns too. Yeah. So if you're going to walk the same coffee shop, cause that works for your structure, cross to the other side of the road, yeah. go around to the other side of the block, like become sensitive over and over again to the world around you. Yeah. Like that's what travel is so good for. It's yeah. automatically knocking you out of your routine. So you find inspiration easily. You can do that in the routine. So I'd say it's about finding patterns that work and yeah. then finding subtle ways to break those patterns if it starts to get dull. Yeah, Absolutely. no, that makes perfect yeah. sense. And here's one, like confession time. How many times have you watched Ice Age to inspire you? <laughs> so that's, I think the reason I you're saying so that. I was so happy to hear that in your <laughs> like, Another adult who loves Ice Age. Oh, uh, I'm on a lot of planes. And uh, so my welcome email for subscribers mentions the movie Ice Age and the terrible coffee I have to drink on all these planes. So I, my, my wife will try to watch some new hit movie if we're flying together and I'll watch anything animated. And Ice Age just happens to be on those planes a lot. Um, you know, I watch, I watch far fewer of those things to inspire me. That's like kind of how I, I like scrub my brain of like rigorous thought. Like I'm going to unhook. I play sports and I watch... Uh, well, basically children's movies, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I was so thrilled to hear that because I was like, okay, I'm not crazy that I'm full grown and I love these Pixar animated films. So I'll give you one more. Calvin and Hobbes comics. 
Yeah. Yes. So good. I, if I, there's one type of book I give as gifts the most, it's collections of Calvin and Hobbes comics. That does it for me. Nice. There was one of those in Florida. It had like the complete com- co- collection book of it. And it was just so good for this. Awesome. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So speaking of that, to bring it to closer, you're, um, so Cal- Calvin and Hobbes is one of your inspirations. What other um, book, book or books would you say have been most inspiring to you for, uh, for your creative life? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I I've lost the time to read books. I mean, I've just been, I've, I've been creating more than I'm consuming. So the things I consume, they really have to be short, um, which is not something I'm, I'm thrilled about. Like I really want to read more. Um, I really liked the book in college called never let me go by an author named Kazuo. Uh, I'm going to butcher this name. Kazuo Ishiguro, I think is his name. Um, I'm, I'm a sucker for big cheesy endings and things that make you feel and maybe even don't sit well with you. And that was one of those books in college. Um, I loved Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. Um, and everything Anthony Bourdain really does in his storytelling is so inspirational for me and informative. I like to sit with things I admire and try to extract the underlying framework for how they built that thing. Um, so I do that a lot with his show or different people's shows. Um, you know, so I, I, I think those are the two big ones that I would mention. Okay. And yeah, just so one of the things I just want to mention to close with, because it's so pivotal and critical to you, and I think an important message, uh, and that is the back to the self-awareness thing. Yeah. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, whom we follow and tune into from time to time, especially when we need a a boost of motivation. And uh, he talks about that he basically specializes in self-awareness. Uh, Brendan mm-hmm. Burchard, another thought leader, you know, speaks about self-awareness. You know, we're big on that. And so it's like it's beginning to come out there as an invocation. And yet it's like, like you said, it's not taught in school. Mm-hmm. You know, so how and, and what you just mentioned about um, the meaning that you try to, to extract from things. All of that is about self-awareness. You know, you are building and growing yourself and you're thinking about the world by virtue of kind of investigating those kind of things in thought. So any parting comments about, you know, just about self-awareness topic in general or, or its role, how people develop it, et cetera, whatever you would want to say. Yeah. I feel like the fundamental shift here is, is stop obsessing over everybody else's answers and start asking yourself the right questions. Like you're going to switch from wanting to be the expert to wanting to be a constant investigator because what is self-awareness? if not just an understanding of your own context. And your context involves, in my mind, three things. Yourself, like you cannot remove yourself from your context. And just by you existing, the work, the company, everything you're doing is gonna be different than everyone else because everyone else doesn't have you in that scenario. So it's yourself and I think that's the most foundational part to ask questions of. Um, The second is your audience, the people you're trying to serve. And that could be in this moment in time, a boss you're trying to convince to let you do something. Uh, it could be an entire group of people you're trying to serve with a product or a piece of art. Um, and then your resources, right? The reality is we, ha- we all have constraints. And so if you can ask the right questions about those three, I think you're well on your way to mastering your own self-awareness. And in the show, we try to document stories and then rip out what do we think the questions were that we can ask where we can think more like those people, not do what they do, not copy them, not be commodity, but have the self-awareness that they have. And so that's, that's the purpose of my show and my speaking is to hand over those questions to people and watch people fly. Excellent. Awesome. Love that. Love that. We're going to leave the, uh, the rest of the questions for another day. Thank you so much. Sorry to keep you over, but thank you. So no, much. this was so much fun. Thank you for having me.
Great. So glad you enjoyed it too. And so, oh yes, your website and best way for people to connect with you. We'll put it on the show notes. Oh, I appreciate that. Unthinkable.fm. That's the source of the show and my weekly newsletter, which is a lot more intimate and a lot more behind the scenes. And I do do a lot of like one-on-one video calls and interactions over email and and the newsletter is the starting point for that. Okay. Fantastic. All right, everybody go check it out. Definitely listen to his podcast. You will love it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Unthinkable. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thanks so much for joining us for the I Create Daily podcast. Please let us know what creatives you would like us to interview and what topics you would be interested in hearing more about. And if you enjoyed this show, please leave a review on iTunes. We value your feedback. We read all the reviews and it just helps us get the word out on the I Create Daily podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much.